0: This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 9 through 13. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus
1: One of the things I've always most appreciated about this church is how y'all respond uh, when someone in our church family is going through a difficult time. i have seen it again and again in this church where the church just really steps up and steps into someone else's crisis and takes it on as their own. And one of the ways I've seen that happen again and again is the way this church prays uh, for those people that are going through some difficult situation got thinking through some of those. One of them that occurred before I was even here was one with uh, Patty Curry. You often see Patty back here in a wheelchair in the back uh, with one of her helpers. Patty's told me a story many times about how when she was a professor in Texas and a car hit her, um, and she wasn't expected to live through the night. And the church came together here and began to pray. And they organized people all night long to keep praying for her. Not only did she survive, but she continued to survive uh, beyond anything the doctors expected. I remember uh, when I first came here, three-year-old Rachel Swink. Um, Rachel, just three years old, uh, was having some problems with her sight, and her parents went up to Riley, and uh, the doctors told them, I remember sitting there with them when the doctors came out, and said that she had a brain tumor, and it was like an octopus that was reaching all through her brain. And when they said it, they said it in a way that made you feel like they're probably trying to prepare you for the fact there's no hope here. But Rachel not only lived, but she's recently graduated college and is working her job now. And the church prayed, and the church prayed, and the church prayed. Remember two-year-old Naomi Clampett, when she was diagnosed with cancer, and the way this church prayed and prayed, and how many people went to the hospital and prayed. And today, Naomi thrives. You remember all three. You remember Kevin Flick and Jeff Hockett and Michael McGuire all recently, all facing life-threatening medical problems. And this church prayed and prayed and prayed and continues to pray for them. And God responded. Now, we all know that when we pray for physical healing, people are in sickness or injuries, God doesn't always heal them. That's not always his response. Once in a while, though, not always, but once in a while, God pulls back the curtain, and he gives us a little glimpse of of what eternity will be like right now. Once in a while, he steps in, and he gives us a, a little taste of that day when there will be no illness, there will be no sickness, there will be no tears. We get a little taste of it right now. In each of those cases, he responded that way. He responded in a miraculous way and brought healing. Again, not always, I'm trying to say that's what always happens when we pray, but what I do know is when we pray, God always responds, and God responds graciously and powerfully. James 5.15 tells us that we should pray for one another, commands us to do that, and in that context, it's actually talking about, in the case of sickness, when people are sick, when they're ill, we should pray for them, we should, as a church, as a people, lift them up in prayer. But when you go through Scripture, you'll find that's not the only case where Scripture calls us to pray for one another. Many other times we're called to pray for one another when it's not about sickness, it's about other issues in life. It should be a regular habit, the way we live together as a community, is we lift one another up in prayer, lift those people around us up in prayer. Several times throughout the letters that Paul has written, you will find prayers of intercession. Matter of fact, at least 42 times you will find him what seemed to be prayers of gratitude to God for somebody, and also prayers of intercession throughout his letters. Uh, Even Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, asked Peter, James, and John to lift him up in prayer, to pray for him. What we do, the Old Testament, you don't find intercessory prayer talked about quite as much, but it was still obviously a part of the life of the people of God to pray for one another. In fact, 1 Samuel 12 tells us this, Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's my responsibility. Of course I will pray for you. I love this quote from Richard Foster. He said, if we truly love people, we will desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them, and this will lead us to pray. If we truly love people, truly care about them, we will do we will step up and respond. We will use our resources and our time, our efforts to help them. In every name that I just read, every one of those cases, this church stepped up and did. Didn't just pray, but they did. They provided food. They, they supported and cared for people in hard times. They mowed yards. They um, gave finances and raised funds. This church has again and again stepped in and done. But if we really love somebody, Foster saying, We really do. We're going to bump up against all those situations where what we do could never be enough. Where what they need, what would truly produce the life in them that we long for, is beyond our resources. So, of course, we have to pray for one another. Of course, we need God to step in and do what is beyond our ability to do. So, today I want to talk a little about intercessory prayer, but I've decided I'm not going to try and talk about it in some comprehensive way. Just let's look at intercessory prayer. Instead, I've decided today to just take one prayer of Paul's, one prayer for the people of God that he prayed, and take a look at it. My hope is that maybe it'll inspire us to think a little bit about some ways we can expand our prayers for one another. Hopefully you're already praying for one another, but I want you to think about maybe growing that a little, broadening that a little in the ways you think about praying for one another. So the prayer we're going to look at is the one you saw read just a few moments ago, in 1 Thessalonians 3. But to really understand that those words, you kind of got to look at it in context and understand the context in which it was prayed. So in this situation, Paul had, some time before this letter was sent, had gone on his second missionary journey to Thessalonica. He'd gone there with um, Timothy and with Silas, and he went to these to this town to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what they did. They presented the good news of Jesus Christ in this town, first time being there. And we're told that many Greeks accepted the gospel and that several prominent women in town accepted the gospel. But then we're also told that that Paul went into the synagogue three weeks in a row, and there he taught the scriptures and he um, argued with them about the scriptures and how Jesus was that promised Messiah that they were waiting for. We're told there actually not that many believed. But some did. Some Jews did believe. But as the story goes on, we see that many of those people in the synagogue, probably some of the Jewish leaders, uh, were jealous of Paul. They didn't like the impact he was having in town. So they went out and rounded up some kind of uh, rough characters, and they encouraged them to start trouble. And so they stirred up a riot in Thessalonica, and they went out looking for Paul and Timothy and Silas to cause trouble. And they really did stir up a pretty big riot, but they didn't find them. And so in the middle of the night, finally people convinced Paul and Silas and Timothy that they needed to get out of town for their own safety. It was just too dangerous for them to stay and they needed to leave. So in the middle of the night, they did leave. They left town, went on to Berea where more trouble happened. Eventually, Paul goes to Athens and then later to Corinth and probably wrote this letter from Corinth uh, back to them sometime later. So he's been going through some difficult times. He's been facing some trials even before he goes to Thessalonica. It's when he was jailed in Philippi. So this has been a rough trip these guys have been on. And we're told that when he was in Thessalonica, he was probably only there. People believe probably only about six to eight weeks. He wasn't with these people for a long time. These new believers had just come to know Christ. This new church that was just forming. They're only with him to disciple him about six to eight weeks, and then, middle of the night, in the middle of persecution, they have to leave. So, Paul knows that they're probably going through a pretty hard time back there. That these people he left, these new Christians, that persecution that was coming after them is probably now going against that young church and those young believers. We kind of know something about what's probably being said about Paul after he left there to these new believers. Some of the things that they're are being used to try and bring them down by the things that Paul writes in his letter back to them, ways he, ways he kind of defends himself. Because in 1 Thessalonians, he, he starts saying things like, you remember that I, we had pure motives when we were with you. You remember that we didn't manipulate, we didn't use flattering words. We were honest with you. We just presented the truth to you. You remember how general and loving we were with you and vulnerable we were with you. You remember that we didn't try to be a burden to you or get anything from you. We worked hard to take care of ourselves. This wasn't about greed. This wasn't about using you. And all that tells us that probably what these new believers were being told about, Paul, is look at these guys. These guys are just more of those teachers passed through town, took off and forgot you in the middle of the night. They don't really care about you. They're just like those other teachers. were here to get something for themselves and use you. Paul says, but you know that's not true. You remember us how we were with you. Stop and think about how we loved you and cared for you and asked nothing from you. We sacrificed for you. Matter of fact, he says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2 like a mother caring for her little children, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So, Paul again has been traveling going through a lot of persecution and hard times. He gets to Athens, and in Athens, it's, again, maybe not so much persecution, but it just seems like things aren't going so well there. Uh, Paul's, it's been rough. And We forget sometimes that someone like Paul actually can get tired and beat up and worn out, right? Paul's, you know, supposed to be superhuman. None of these things can happen. But I imagine this has been hard. And boy, you hear in this letter, he's worried about these people back in Thessalonica. He is, he is just struggling with concern for them. What's happened to them? Will they still be standing firm in the Lord? Are they suffering in the way that we could have suffered if we stayed? Worried, they're on his mind. And what is remarkable in this letter, what really stands out when you really pay attention to 1 Thessalonians is the deep, deep concern that Paul has for these people. Maybe again, it's because he's just wore out Maybe he's just struggling, he's exhausted, and, and suddenly his emotion just pours out. But whatever the case, the words here are words that are almost shocking in how vulnerable they are, how emotional he feels uh, about these people. In 217, he says this brothers, when we were torn away from you, when when we were torn away, we had to leave. That phrase torn away would be more literally translated when we were orphaned from you. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, says about it, that Paul chose a word that just wanted to show the pain in his soul. That this is a word that was almost unusual to use here. When he talks about being torn away, it's like a a child has just lost parents. That's how we felt when we had to leave you. It was so painful. Later in 2.17, he says, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come back to you so badly. He says in some way, Satan kept blocking their way. We that doesn't give us the details of how that happened. But he says somehow we were unable to return to you. But we had such intense longing. That phrase that's interpreted intense longing is used almost everywhere else in Scripture and translated as lust in a negative sense. It's a word that is, again, strange. It's a strange word choice that Paul made here. Almost seems to want to shock them with what he's saying. It's you know that word that's always used in this negative sense about lust. That's the feeling we had about coming back to you. It was almost this insatiable desire we wanted to be with you so badly and turn around and come back. But Satan kept blocking the way. In 2.19, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? When Christ returns in that wonderful day, that day, there will be a day of celebration, but it will also be a day of judgment. He says, in that day when Christ comes, is it not you who will be the ones who will bring us glory and honor, who will bring us the most joy? Paul is saying, I can't wait for that day when we get to present you before Christ. You are, you are the thing that we most celebrate. You're the thing we're proudest of. You are our deepest joy. We, want, we can't wait. Till Christ comes back and you get to stand before him. Again, these are people he was with six to eight weeks. And this depth of feeling for them, kind of amazing. And this effusive expression of emotion continues on in chapter 3. In 3 verses 1 and verse 6, you hear the same phrase, when we could stand it no longer. So Paul's saying that when I was in Athens, and he's there with Timothy, And he said, we literally could not stand it any longer. We could not hold back. Paul, I'm sure at that point, does not want to lose Timothy. Timothy. Sounds like it was his only company and support at the time. And he says, yet we were so worried about you and concerned about you that I sent Timothy away, willing to be alone to send him back. And I sent Timothy back so that he might make sure that you're supported and encouraged in your faith. I wanted you to have the strength that he could give you. And we just couldn't, We just couldn't stop ourselves from doing it because we were so concerned. And then when Timothy returns, you hear these words from Paul that feel like he's just overwhelmed with joy. Because when the report comes back, the report is they have stood firm in faith and love. You were worried about the relationship with God? They persevered. They stood firm. They're young believers facing horrible persecution. Yet they're still standing firm. And then Timothy also reports they've got fond memories of us. They're still thinking well of us. So even though you thought that these people are putting you down and, you know, trying to make you look bad to them, they didn't believe it. They still love you. The relationships with us are still strong. The relationship with God is still strong. And in the face of that, in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this Now we really live. Now we got that news that, that you, everything we'd hoped for is true and more. Now we're fully alive because that's true. That's how concerned he was for them. Um, again, I don't think in the English sometimes we catch how astounding his expression of emotion is. I was thinking about this, and I think, you know, Paul in a lot of ways was like a parent who, um, you know, kids are going off into a difficult situation and you haven't heard from them and you haven't heard from them. And finally news comes. Uh, Thanksgiving, we went and visited my daughter, and during that time, we were talking with her. She's been struggling with some uh, health issues that have been ongoing health issues. Her husband, for a year and a half, has been struggling with some pretty serious health issues. They have two very young boys, which, again, ask a lot of you. Uh, And she's full-time in a very demanding nursing program. So when we saw her at Thanksgiving, we were just worried about her. Just like, man, she is pushed to her limits. You know, And we knew she still had a couple more weeks to go in her first clinical rotation that she was in, and it was just a hard one, at the facility she was at. And so we knew she still had that, and then over the next couple of weeks after Thanksgiving, we just never heard back from her. We knew she was so busy, she just didn't have time to contact us. We just prayed for her. We just didn't know what was going on, but we knew it was hard. And then at the end of that time, she contacts my wife and tells her that her rotation had finally ended and that her supervisor had come to give her evaluation for that rotation. And she said for evaluation, she said, I want to take you into this room, and she took her back into a room at the facility. And when she opened the door to the room, she said there was a group of staff members there, and they all started applauding. And she said that they said to her, "Uh, you are the best student that we've ever had here in the nursing program. And they all stood and applauded her. You know, if you've worried about your daughter and been concerned about her and how she's handling things, And then she calls and gives you that news. You know how you feel? It's like, oh, not only are you surviving, but you're flourishing. God is using you in the way we hope he'll use you. Everything is going above and beyond what we hope for for you. And so when I read Paul say those words, and and we feel truly alive, I get that. I get what that feeling is, to long the best for someone so deeply when you finally hear that it's happening, that God's doing it, man, you just come alive in those moments, right? That's the kind of feeling Paul has for these people that he's been with for just a couple months. How deeply he cares, like a parent cares for children. And then he prays for them. And then I don't think it was hard for Paul to pray a prayer of thanksgiving and gratitude to God. He starts with gratitude. Of course he does, right? Because Man, it's such good news when we see what God's doing. And Paul understood, if your love is increasing and growing, it's got to be from God because God's the source of love. If good is happening in your life, that's got to be from God because God is the source of good. got to be. So he goes to the one that, of course, he should express gratitude towards. towards God. Because God is doing something in their life that Paul had no part in at that point. But God was still there and God was still working. So he does what he should. He gives God thanks. But I think also the reason that sometimes we should start prayer with expressions of thanks when we're praying for others, gratitude for what God's doing in their life, because I think it stops and reminds us before we ask anything else that God's always been there, that God is invested in their life, cares about them. As much as we care, as maybe concerned as we are, we serve a God who cares more. We serve a God who loves more deeply and would sacrifice more. We serve a God who has the resources to do whatever is needed. When we stop and thank God for what he's doing, it reminds us, you know what, it isn't all because of us. It doesn't all depend upon us. He's always been there. In some ways, we just need to look how we can join him in what he's doing. It changes the way we pray. We pray so he expresses gratitude. I think it also changes the way we pray in the sense that we don't feel like we need to come to God with some kind of manipulative formula of prayer. We don't need to twist his arm. We don't need to make him do the right thing, right? God loves. God wants good for his people. He wants good for mankind. This is the God that we are praying to. I don't need to trick him into doing something. I don't need to twist his arm into it. I simply need to come before him and ask. And what a glorious thing that he lets me be a part of that. He hears my request and lets that be a part of the good that he will do, and how he responds to it. So he expresses gratitude. Again, Paul then passionately just talks about how much he cares. Night and day he says he prays for them, just earnestly, deeply prays for them. John Calvin wrote this: "Our prayer must not be self-centered. it must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden, uh, that we must lay upon God but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. It is a remarkable gift God has given us. We can pray for one another. And he responds. It makes a difference. He lets us be a part of it. And, And when Paul prays then, as he goes on and makes intercession for these people in the next couple of verses, It's clear that he, you know, Paul prays for very specific needs, I'm sure, of people, just like we do. He prays, I'm sure, for their health, for their success and their endeavors. I'm sure he prays for their safety and their protection and all those things. But Paul also, it's clear in his prayers when you look at them again and again, he always prays with an eye towards this bigger story, this larger story that God is telling. The story that's being told beyond what our eyes can see. The story that involves our God. The fact that it's an eternal story, a much larger story. He prays with that in mind. So Again, pray for those practical kind of temporary earthly needs. But also pray remembering that our life is about more than that. And if we love someone and want good for them, then we're also praying for that story. So Paul prays in verse 12. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else. Again, the English might be a little bit soft here. It's like he's praying, may your love increase beyond limits. May may your love be so deep that you can't help but start loving other people. You just can't hold it all in. It's too much of it, right? May God cause your love to increase and abound so overwhelmingly that it has to come out towards others. It has to. That's what he wants to see in them. Because that's the love that makes a difference, Right? It's the kind that grows from inside. It's the kind that's sincere. It's not just do loving things. Now, I'd rather you do loving things than mean things. That would be good. I'd rather you do kind things than mean things. But it's not enough to just do. I've heard people say many times, do and eventually you'll care. I say, well, or care and maybe eventually you'll do. They're kind of bound together, right? I, I want us to do loving things. I don't think it's usually enough that we just do. The kind of love that has real impact is the kind of love that grows out of sincere concern, care, desire for the best for the other. I've mentioned this before, that one of the things I've seen sometimes when I'm counseling married couples, and again, I have such respect for couples that will come and talk to somebody else when their marriage is struggling, because that is a hard thing to do. I have such respect for people that are willing to do that. Um, but sometimes when they come, because, you know, it's a hard situation, they're in a tough place, but sometimes when they come, um, there's a, they feel a need to defend their position because they feel like they're being blamed for all the problems and they're married, so there's a tendency, usually in both, I kind of want to defend that I'm not the whole problem. Sometimes I want to defend I'm not the problem at all, right? So sometimes people will kind of give a laundry list of, here's the things I'm doing that either make me a good husband or make me a good wife. I've, I've got my list. I've loved well, I've done my job well, and so here's my list, so that person's probably the problem. You ought to talk to them, right? We all do that sometimes, so if you're married, you know well, I do that sometimes. I'm sure the rest of you do too. Uh, the problem's over there, so here's my list. One of the things that I will often talk to people about in those moments is go back to the list and say, what I want to hear is, so let's take some of the items off that list. So tell me how that thing you did is for and about that person sitting beside you. Tell me how it's for them. Tell me why you think that is the best for them. Tell me why you would do that because you really do care about them and love them. Help me understand that. Because if you can't explain that to me, then that list isn't very meaningful. Because I've never seen a spouse who goes, you know what? I am just thrilled that my husband or my wife does the right thing. I know they could care less about me, but I'm just glad they do the right thing. I've never seen that be enough. I'd rather do the right thing than the wrong thing. I've never seen that be enough. We want sincere love, right? We want someone to do it because they long to do it. Because they can't wait for good to happen to us and for the best to happen to us. That's the kind of love that Paul is praying for will come out of these people in Thessalonica. He will so increase their love that that love will overflow and it will have a remarkable impact in one another and in the world around them. And then Paul goes on and prays, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his Holy ones." So finally, then he prays, "I want you to, I want your love to increase and abound and overflow, but also pray that God will strengthen your heart so that you'll be blameless. And it's a word that kind of means just not guilty. Not guilty of sin. Not guilty of doing that which offends God. That you'll be holy. And that's a little harder word to, to define. Uh, holy is this idea of set apart from sin and set apart to God. It has this idea of cleanness to it. Clean of that which offends God. But it's a, it's a complex word. But again, he's saying, I want, I want you to be people who, who, who not only love, but you love in a way that lives within God's definition of love. Love in a way that pursues the very best for others. The best that considers, again, not just their health and success and uh, good things to happen to them in this life, but considers that larger story and their relationship with God. I want them to be people who someday will come before God, and when, when God sees them, God will be able to say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. I want them to know that kind of joy. That's what I pray for them, that they would live that kind of life. He prays it for them because he knows they can't do it by themselves, right? It will never be all by their choices it's going to happen. God's the one who's going to have to change them if they're going to love that way and live that way. In the rest of the letter, he'll call them to actually make choices to do it. But There's always that tension in Paul's writing between make the choices, but it's only going to happen if God does it in you. That's why he prays. Kind of prayers we need to pray for each other so here's my uh here's my thought about all this here's my my uh, application at the end of this i I would like to encourage us as a church so I want to challenge you as a church everybody before you leave here today look around and find one person one person maybe you don't know that well, maybe you know them but they're just not someone whose person's ever been on a prayer list for you or person you think to pray for find one person in this church one person who's here one person who's not here today one person and for the next two months pray this kind of prayer for them so pray the kind of prayer that grows out of true concern for them go well, i'm not that concerned for them okay now you got a task right get to know them pursue them understand them find out what their needs are Begin looking for what maybe God's doing in their life and what God wants to do in their life. and Begin joining Him in being concerned about that. Pursue them till you become concerned. And then let your prayer grow out of that concern. Prayers of gratitude. Prayers of thanks to God for what He is doing in their life and what He will do in their life. Begin praying for them, thanking God for them. And then begin praying that God would increase their love. God would grow it to the point of overflowing. Pray for the relationships in their home, for the relationships in the church, at work, with their neighbors. Pray that they would be people who would so increase in love for those people that cross their path that they can't help but pour out love to them. And then pray that they would live the kind of life, the blameless, holy kind of life, that would follow and obey their God, that one day they can hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant." Pray for the next couple months every single day. And Paul's prayer wasn't long, right? Pretty quick prayer. Every single day for the next couple months, pray that way for somebody else. One person. So this is my experiment. I want want to see what that does in our church. Try that. Join me in this experiment and see what it'll do. Just one person. Don't stop praying for the other people you're praying for. But add one person and let's see what God would do. I think that... God would do remarkable things beyond what we could ever do on our own if we just pray for one another. So let's pray now. Father, how thankful we are that the God of the universe, the creator of everything, listens to us, listens and cares. Father, that you know us in ways that uh, we don't even know ourselves, your care is sincere and real willing to sacrifice for us because your love so overflows father you want the very best for us you always pursue the good for us you actually pursue us with good father i pray that we would begin to be even a taste of that to one another thank you that you let us be a part of the good work you're doing in your name amen